There was a lawyer once. His name was Francis Scott Key. He penned a song that I'm sure you're aware of. You've seen it. It's in most hymnals throughout our churches. It's called the National Anthem. It is our song as an American. We go, however, to a ball game. We stand in our church services and we sing the words of that song. And they float over our minds and our lips and we don't even realize what we're singing. Most of us have memorized it as a child, but we've never really thought about what it means. Let me tell you a story. Francis Scott Key was a lawyer in Baltimore. The colonies were engaged in vicious conflict with the mother country, Britain. Because of this conflict and the protractedness of it, they had accumulated prisoners on both sides. The American colonies had prisoners and the British had prisoners. And the American government initiated a move. They went to the British and they said, let us negotiate for the release of these prisoners. They said, we want to send a man out to discuss this with you. They were holding the American prisoners in boats about a thousand yards offshore. And they said, we want to send a man by the name of Francis Scott Key. He will come out and negotiate to see if we can make a mutual exchange. On the appointed day in a rowboat, he went out to this boat and he negotiated with the British officials. And they reached a conclusion that men could be exchanged on a one-for-one -one basis. Francis Scott Key, jubilant with the fact that he'd been successful, went down below in the boats and what he found was a cargo hold full of humanity, men. And he said, men, I've got news for you tonight. You're free. He said, tonight I have negotiated successfully your return to the colonies. He said, you'll be taken out of this boat, out of this filth, out of your chains. As he went back up on board to arrange for their passage to the shore, the admiral came and he said, we have a slight problem. He said, we will still honor our commitment to release these men, but it'll be merely academic after tonight. It won't matter. And Francis Scott Key said, what do you mean? He said, well, Mr. Key, he said, tonight we have laid an ultimatum upon the colonies. Your people will either capitulate and lay down the colors of that flag that you think so much of, or you see that fort right over there, Fort Henry? He said, we're going to remove it from the face of the earth. He said, how are you going to do that? He said, if you will, scan the horizon of the sea. And as he looked, he could see hundreds of little dots. And he said, that's the entire British war fleet. He said, all of the gunpowder, all of the armament is being called upon to demolish that fort. It will be here within striking distance in a matter of about two and a half hours. He said, the war is over. These men would be free anyway. He said, you can't shell that fort. He said, that's, that's a large fort. He said, it's full of women and children. He says, it's predominantly not a military fort. They said, don't worry about it. They said, we've left them a way out. And he said, what's that? He said, do you see that flag way up on the rampart? He said, we have told them that if they will lower that flag, the shelling will stop immediately. And we'll know that they've surrendered and you'll now be under British rule. Francis Scott Key went down below and told the men what was about to happen. And they said, how many ships? He said, hundreds. The ships got closer. Francis Scott Key went back up on top and he said, men, I'll shout down to you what's going on as we watch. As twilight began to fall and as the haze hung over the ocean as it does at sunset, 
suddenly the British war fleet unleashed. <clears throat> he says the sound was deafening. There were so many guns that there were no reliefs. He said it was absolutely impossible to talk or hear. He said suddenly the sky, although dark, was suddenly lit. And he says from down below, all he could hear the men, the prisoners, saying was, tell us where the flag is. What have they done with the flag? Is the flag still flying over the rampart? Tell us. One hour, two hours, three hours into the shelling. Every time the bomb would explode and it would be close to the flag, they could see the flag in the illuminated red glare of that bomb. And Francis Scott Key would report down to the men below, it's still up. It's not down. The admiral came and he said, your people are insane. He said, what's the matter with them? He said, don't they understand this is an impossible situation? Francis Scott Key said he remembered what George Washington had said. He said the thing that sets the American Christian apart from all other people in the world is he will die on his feet before he'll live on his knees. The Admiral said we have now instructed all of the guns to focus on the rampart to take that flag down. He said we don't understand something. Our reconnaissance tells us that that flag has been hit directly again and again and again, and yet it's still flying. We don't understand that. But he said, now we're about to bring every gun for the next three hours to bear on that point. Francis Scott Key said the barrage was unmerciful. All that he could hear was the men down below praying. The prayer. God keep that flag flying where we last saw it. Sunrise came. He said there was a heavy mist hanging over the land, but the rampart was tall enough. There stood the flag, completely nondescript, in shreds. The flagpole itself was at a crazy angle. The flag was still at the top. Francis Scott Key went aboard and immediately went into Fort Henry to see what had happened. And what he'd found had happened was that that flagpole and that flag had suffered repetitious direct hits. And when hit had fallen. But men, fathers, who knew what it meant for that flag to be on the ground. Although knowing that all of the British guns were trained on it, walked over and held it up humanly until they died. Their bodies were removed and others took their place. Francis Scott Key said what held that flagpole in place at that unusual angle were patriots' bodies. He penned the song, Oh say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. 
or the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that the flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet fly and wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. The debt was demanded. The price, it was paid. Welcome to the underworld. I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. If you don't know the past, you're only doomed to repeat it. Welcome to Public Access America. This is your history. This is your country. This is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in time with us right now on Public Access America. I am honored, I'm humbled to be up here in front of so many great Americans amongst so many honorable veterans, so many great Americans, and to be able to speak with you today on this Memorial Day. I love our veteran history. I went to recruit training not too far from here, a couple miles from here, and that's when I first started learning about our veterans' history. They told us about great Americans in World War I in Bella Woods. As the French forces were retreating out of the woods under the fire of German machine guns, a Marine captain said, retreat hell, we just got here. And into the breach they went. World War II, the Japanese said Iwo Jima would last for a thousand years. We raised a flag on it in three days. And Korea. Forces surrounded by communist Chinese, outnumbered 20 to 1. Colonel Chesty Puller said, fellas, we got them right where we want them. We can shoot any direction and hit the enemy. <laughs> in Vietnam, Khe San, 500 Americans stood on a hill and said, you will not take us off of here. Outnumbered 30 to 1, North Vietnamese forces attacked them for 77 days and finally said, forget it. We can't take them. You can have it. They went home. Ira! That's the history passed down to our generation. And when it came my time, I was honored. I was privileged to serve with the 1st Marine Division. I was part of the march up to Baghdad in this war on terror. When we got to Baghdad, that's where Memorial Day truly came home for me. We were in a place called Ferdo Square. The Iraqi people embraced us as an ally, and together we toppled a dictator. And when I watched these people in that street of Baghdad, 
I watched them celebrate. I watched them rejoice. I looked in their faces, and what I realized I was looking at was liberty. I was looking at people who had grown up under a dictator, had never known a day's freedom their entire lives. I was in my late 30s. I realized I'd never known a day in my life without it. I had never known a day in my life that was their daily reality, and that freedom was not free. I was born in 1967. I was born with those Vietnam veterans. You Vietnam veterans out there, when you were off fighting the spread of communism, I was born on your watch under the liberty you were providing. That generation before that fought in Korea, stopping the spread of communism. That greatest generation that stopped those totalitarian regimes and not only de defended liberty around the world in the great wars, but came home and built the greatest prosperity this nation's ever known. Ira, I like that. So we have a motto in the Marine Corps. We say, Semper Fi, always faithful, faithful to God, country, and Corps. And on Memorial Day, I want to tell you a story of Semper Fi. I want to tell you of a man named Corporal Evnen. He's a sort of Marine that won't be written about in history books in a battle that you'll never read about. It was at a place called Al Kut. We were assaulted from the flank, and we did what we did what Americans do. We turned their ambush site into their kill zone. We turned in and attacked into the ambush. Uh, Amtrak's dropped ramps. Marines charged into the Palm Grove. Corporal Evnen was one of those Marines. On his way into the Grove, because it was a horrible fight. It was close range, hand grenades, machine guns, nasty fight. On Evnen's way in, he was struck down by an AK-47 round just below the flak jacket, right in the lower abdomen region. Bad wound, but still alive. He was pulled out onto the road, medevaced out onto the road. Marines around him, corpsmen around him were applying first aid. But it was a horrible wound. He was probably not going to survive. Those individuals administering the, first, administering the first aid knew it. And more importantly, Corporal Evnen knew it. We all talk about courage, honor, commitment. But the real deal American, that real deal guy is that one when you're up against the wall, up against adversity. Do you believe in it then? So they looked down at Corporal Evan and knowing he was going to die, and they just wanted to make his life a little bit more comfortable on the way out the door. And they said, Evan, is there anything we can do for you? Anything, just, just trying to ease the pain. Evan looked up with the clarity, the courage, honor, commitment that we all hope we have at that moment. And he said, no, I'm right where I want to be. I'm here with my brothers. And Corporal Evan passed. So on this day, I, 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 am, I am privileged to stand in front of so many great Americans as we honor those fallen and say thank you. Thank you for my freedom. Thank you for this great nation. God bless America. God bless you. Hey, Joe. What are you doing down here at the center? I mean, with a three-day weekend, it's pretty scarce around here. All the kids have took off for the day. Oh, kill it, Mr. Franklin. I mean, I want to come and shoot a few hoops, get my practice on. You know I got to keep my skills tight. Yeah. That's pretty much how you roll, Joe. Well, did you get in your practice? You got that arch on that jumper, you know, flipping that wrist when you hit the top? Come on, Mr. Franklin. You know I got mad game. I was actually in there working on my shot and, of course, my dribbling, too. You know, I didn't want to be at the house right now while they're getting ready for Memorial Day weekend. Oh, that's cool. Is somebody you know a veteran? No, but we like to kick it on the weekend. 
I really didn't know it had anything to do with veterans. Yeah, girl. This is a time to support our troops and celebrate them defending our country in times of war. Really? That's what it's about? I thought we just got like a free three-day weekend and time to barbecue. Come on now, Jess. I know you're smarter than that. I mean, think of stuff like the Star Spangled Banner or the Pledge of Allegiance. Those are all things that celebrate the United States of America. And of course, with our troops, when they need to come to our defense, they're there to support us. And those that have passed on, well, we pay honor to them on Memorial Day weekend. That's the big reasoning for Memorial Day weekend, not just to have a three-day weekend. Oh, I didn't even know that. I know, like, Mr. Rose and Miss Mitri, they were in the military. That's right. And this is a time we honor those who have come before us and pay tribute on Memorial Day weekend. What's this place, Mr. Franklin? Jess, this is a place where we honor our fallen men and women who went off to war to protect our country, and we pay tribute to them with memorials just like this. Wow, Mr. Franklin. Like, I had no idea that this is what Memorial Day meant. To be honest, when George Bowman... My fellow patriot bestowed this honor upon me. It took all my will to not back down. Honoring the fallen is something so very personal that I didn't think I could share my own grief. But if I was the first person asked, then it was my duty to not let this burden fall on someone else's already heavy heart. There have been 1.6 million U.S. soldiers that have served in the combat theater in the Middle East since 2001. That is 0.5% of the current U.S. population. If you compare that to the 2% of the populace that served in Vietnam, or the 12% that fought in World War II, this seems to be a minor incident. As of March 17, 2008, there have been over 4,000 United States fatalities from Operation Iraqi Freedom, with approximately 74 of them officially declared Wisconsin's sons and daughters. Now, I stand up here and throw out these numbers, and you, my friends, my neighbors, either reacted with a sorrowful sigh or a desensitized disdain. And if you did so react, it's not your fault. It's hard to feel grief, compassion, anger for over a five-year period of time. It's hard to feel anything at all when only numbers are flashed across the street, screen or spoken from a podium. Numbers are not faces. Numbers are not people. Numbers are not names of loved ones. Names of my comrades can fall from my lips like tears from my own eyes. Staff Sergeant Todd Olson Corporal Kenneth Cross, Specialist Sean Novak, Staff Sergeant Stephen Martin, Private Isaiah Hunt, Major Chris Splinter, Captain Jonathan Kurth, and Specialist Justin Linden. These are all Wisconsin sons and daughters. I'm sure more than a few of you know of Justin. Justin played baseball for the Clinton Cougars Justin graduated from Clinton in 1999. Justin moved to Oregon, where he met his future wife, Sarah. Justin and Sarah were married on February 28, 2004, just before Justin was deployed to Iraq. 
On June 4, 2004, Specialist Justin Linden was killed when his convoy was attacked by improvised explosive devices and rocket-propelled grenades. I have never seen so much loss and so much pride fill a man that it does with Wayne Linden, Justin's father. Every time he thinks about his son, you see the loss and the pride in immeasurable, immeasurable amounts. I too have felt the loss of a soldier. Losing this soldier has affected my life in ways that I still have yet to fully understand. This soldier was not my son, no, God willing, never that. And it was not during combat with an enemy. The soldier was my father by my birth and my brother through our service and our love of our country. While Dan Hubbard was attending Elkhorn High School, his cousin and friend since childhood, Michael Stopplett, was engaging democracy's enemy in Vietnam. On November 1st, 1966, my father's cousin was killed by small arms fire. Private First Class Michael Stopplett's name can be found on panel 12E, line 8 of the Vietnam Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. My great cousin was the, was the third Warworth County resident to die in Vietnam and the first of Elkhorn's sons. My father could not cope with his friend's demise. He tried to attend college, but I believe my father could not shake the feeling of, if only I was there, if only I could do something. My father, Dan Hubbard, enlisted in 1969 and was quickly sent into the war zone. The things he saw there I shall not repeat for you this morning. The atrocities and inhumanity was widespread. My father saw combat, some of which I cannot attest. And when he came home, he was physically and mentally disabled. Now my father's had an entirely different war thrust upon him upon his return home. A war for recognition and compassion. A war fought against and for the country in which he so loved. He was denied a Purple Heart. He was denied his dignity. He was denied a clean conscience. By the time I turned 14, my father had given up his battles. On February 11, 1992, Dan Hubbard, my father, died. Nameless, faceless, another statistic of the Vietnam area. Another number, he was buried on February 14, 1992, Valentine's Day with his friend's purple heart pinned on his chest. I, Raymond Dan Hubbard, ask you, my friends, my neighbors, to accept my apologies. I cried your pardon. I beg you for forgiveness, for I have forgotten the face of my father. When I was 14 and I had taken up smoking, I had forgotten the face of my father. When I was 16 and started to drink heavily, I had forgotten the face of my father. When I was 17 and dropped out of high school, I had forgotten the face of my father. During my graduation from basic training at the age of 24, I felt a hand clasp my shoulder. I looked up into my father's proud eyes and wept quietly in formation. Prior to my deployment training, I chose a picture taken of my father while he was in service to his country in Vietnam. 
I attached it to my bunk so he could always watch over me during my tour. On July 4th, 2006, our nation's Independence Day, when a large self-propelled rocket detonated mere meters away from me, I saw my father's face again, fighting to keep me alive. My friends, my neighbors, only through our perseverance and never forgetting will we get through this difficult times ahead. Only through our humility and never forgetting will we make them who have served feel our gratitude. Only through our unity and never forgetting will we honor the fallen. My name is Sergeant Raymond Hubbard, and I will never forget the face of my brothers. Thank you. The 1st Union Regiment that marched up Meeting Street in Charleston was the 21st USCT, Colored Infantry, a black regiment, and they accepted the surrender of the city from its mayor. And then they began to hold ceremonies, the black folks of Charleston, they began to hold ceremonies all around the city. They held a parade um, in late March, or was it early April of 65. They had this huge parade where they had two floats, and they had on one float they had a little slave auction occurring, a mock slave auction with a woman with her baby being sold away. And on the next float, they had a coffin labeled slavery, and it said, Fort Sumter dug its grave, April 12, 1861. And then they planned one more ceremony. Now, and by the way, the war, when it finally, finally, finally ended, they held an extraordinary ceremony on Fort Sumter. Um, they crammed about 3,000 people onto the little island. Uh, all kinds of dignitaries came. Uh, now General Anderson, not the colonel who had surrendered the fort four years ago, came and raised the U.S. flag four years almost to the day he had taken it down. William Lloyd Garrison was there from the north, the great abolitionist who wept uncontrollably when he heard a, a, a small black children's choir sing John Brown's body. And the very night of that ceremony, which was the, uh, the 14th of April, they held a, a, a banquet of a sort in a building that had a roof on it back in Charleston. And that was the very night, of course, that Lincoln was assassinated at Ford's Theater in Washington. But the black folks of Charleston had planned one more ceremony. That ceremony was a burial ceremony. It turns out that during the last months of the war, the Confederate Army turned the planter's horse track, a race course, it was called the Washington Race Course, into an open-air cemetery, uh, excuse me, prison. And in that open-air prison, in the infield of the horse track, about 260-odd Union soldiers had died of disease and exposure. And they were buried in unmarked graves in a mass gravesite out behind the grandstand of the racetrack. And by the way, there was no more important and symbolic site in low country planter slaveholding life than their racetrack. Well, the black folks at Charleston got organized. They knew about all this. They went to the site. They reinterred all the graves, uh, the, the, the men. They couldn't mark them with names. They didn't have any names. And they made them proper graves. And they built a fence all the way around the cemetery, about 100 yards long and 50, 60 yards deep. And they whitewashed the fence. And over an archway, they painted the inscription, Martyrs of the Race Course. 
And then on May 1st, 1865, they held a parade of 10,000 people on the racetrack, led by 3,000 black children carrying armloads of roses and singing John Brown's body, followed then by black women, then by black men. It was regimented this way. Then by contingents of Union infantry. Everybody marched all the way around the racetrack. As many as could fit got into the grave site. Five black preachers read from scripture. A children's choir sang the national anthem, America the Beautiful, and several spirituals. And then they broke from that and went back into the infield of the racetrack and did essentially what you and I do on Memorial Day. They ran races. They listened to 16 speeches by one count. And the troops marched back and forth, and they held picnics. This was the first Memorial Day. African Americans invented Memorial Day in Charleston, South Carolina. There are three or four cities in the United States, North and South, that claim to be the site of the first Memorial Day, but they all claim 1866. They were too late. I had the great blind good fortune to, to discover this story in a messy, totally disorganized collection of veterans' papers at the Houghton Library at Harvard some years back. And what you have there is black Americans recently freed from slavery announcing to the world with their flowers and their feet and their song what the war had been about. What they basically were creating was the Independence Day of a second American Revolution. That story got lost. It got lost for more than a century. And when I discovered it, I started calling people in Charleston that I knew in archives and libraries, including the Avery Institute, the Black Research Center in Charleston. Has anybody have you ever heard of this story? And no one had ever heard it. It showed the power of the lost cause in the wake of the war to erase a story. But I started looking for other sources, and lo and behold, there were lots of sources. Harper's Weekly even had a drawing of the cemetery in an 1867 issue. The old oval of that racetrack is still there today. If you ever go to Charleston, go up to Hampton Park. Hampton Park is today what the race course was then. It's named for Wade Hampton, the white supremacist redeemer governor of, of South Carolina at the end of Reconstruction and a Confederate general during the Civil War. And that park sits immediately adjacent to the Citadel, the Military Academy of Charleston. On any given day, you can see at any given time about 100 or 200 Citadel cadets jogging on the track of the old race course. There is no marker. There's no memento. There's only a little bit of a memory.
Aloha. Uh, what a beautiful day. Um, the, the cemetery looks absolutely gorgeous. I'd like to uh, give a round of applause to all that, that, um, that helped put this thing together. The VFW, the uh, Ladies Auxiliary, uh, the Boy Scouts, uh, the JROTC. Um, just a fantastic uh, job putting this thing together. So I'd like to give them a round of applause. Please. There are about 25 million living American veterans today. And since General Washington commanded the, the Continental Army, 42 million Americans have served the colors. A million more have been killed in its defense, and another million and a half wounded. These are small numbers compared to the billions across the planet, and billions yet still unborn that live free because Americans have fought and died for their freedom. Memorial Day was established by presidential decree on the 5th of May, 1868, and first observed later that month on the 30th when all the graves at Arlington National Cemetery were decorated with flowers and flags. Through the years, Memorial Day continued to mean visiting and decorating graves or town square memorials to those who died serving our great nation and celebrating with parades and civic events. Americans in the past kept the day quiet, pausing to remember, at least for a little while, the kind of men and women that so willingly gave that last full measure. When I was growing up, I felt in awe of my grandfather's generation. Guadalcanal, Sicily, Tarawa, Salerno, Iwo Jima, Normandy, those places were real to them. They lived it. Then came my father's generation, trudging through the jungles of Vietnam. It was a bit different then. We removed our hats during the national anthem. We said the Pledge of Allegiance before school, and it didn't offend anyone's sensitivities or seen as trampling on the rights of anyone else. Memorial Day was a day to remember our heroes with the day of reverence to repay the debt that we could truly never repay. We live in a different time today. And people have indeed lost something of quality over the years. We don't always see that same selfless devotion to something bigger than ourselves. Memorial Day today is, is more about a day to take advantage of the big sales at the malls. fighting the traffic to, to uh, get to the beach for a long weekend. But we should be ashamed of ourselves if we forget that as we enjoy the long weekend, that we are again at war today.
and the new generation can continues to fight and win. Against an enemy on our behalf in Afghanistan and other locations around the, around the globe. And in contrast, my grandfather and father's generations where nearly everyone had family that served. Only about 1% of Americans serve today. But I can say with confidence that Americans will always stand for what is right. I brought my son Bo here today. And when I look at him, I know that his generation will carry on that tradition too. Nope, they'll carry on that American legacy forward just as his father and grandfather had done as well. Why? Because we love America and are willing to die for freedom in our way of life. Memorial Day is not as much for our families of the fallen or for us who have been to combat and endure losses. We remember those guys every day. Memorial Day is for the rest of the nation's citizens to remember and say thank you to those that have fallen and given so much to all of us. Yeah, thanks. May all of our fallen rest peacefully. May we who love them find peace and understanding in their sacrifice. And that the America that they so loved and protected and gave their lives for it is forever worthy. We will never forget you. God bless America. I love America. Thank you.
therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 